Welcome to the Green Awning Podcast. We're here with part two of our discussion with David Hookstra, Hookstra Golf Design, and Mr. Ron Witten, Architecture Editor Emeritus with Golf Digest Magazine. A lot of good things that uh, are being discussed as we continue this discussion. Uh, we hope you enjoy um, the conversation. But before we get to it, we just want to remind everybody to sign up for a brand new golf event we have on October 23rd called David's Two-Person, Two-Pin, Do-Si-Do Best Shot. It's, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. 10 a.m. shotgun. You sign up, you and a partner, and then you can also select the other team of two that you play with. It's going to be a great time. Um, following the event, we are going to have an Oktoberfest Beer Hall Beer Hall up in the ballroom. First 48 uh, people interested in, uh, in participating in that event. A lot of great food, a lot of great beers. I think 11 different beers are going to be, yeah, gonna be here. I'm pretty sure uh, David's, after his do do best shot, might par- partake with a few of those 11 beers. I'll, I'll try a couple. Um, we're going to set the golf course up as we don't know how many yet, maybe nine par threes. It'll be kind of a hybrid of uh, cross country and Sandvik par three challenge. Yes, it's going to be a lot of fun. Two pins. Two pins per green. One is going to be very accessible. The other, extremely difficult. Um, you get to choose which one you are, are going to attack. If you select to go to the more difficult pin, you get to subtract a stroke from your score. So... That being said, sign up is going on in the pro shop. Be sure to get registered for that event. Going to be a lot of fun. Also, um, we just hope you enjoy part two of our discussion with David Hookstra and Ron Witten. Welcome to the Green Awning Podcast. I'm Jay Gianetto, head PGA professional here at Elmwood Country Club. Sitting here with golf course superintendent David Eichhorn, as well as some special guests here for part two of our discussion with uh, David Hookstra of Hookstra Golf Design and Ron Witten, architecture editor emeritus with Golf Digest Magazine. And and we're really excited to have you guys on here with us. We appreciate you being here, and we're just going to get right into it. Um, here, I've got a question uh, that I've been thinking about for Ron. And uh, in the first edition of this this podcast, we you mentioned that there were a, a limitless variety of golf courses out there. There's no right way to get it done. Um, there, there's no wrong way. Um, combining that with the limitless variety of players out there, um, Everybody has a different taste and a different style of playing the game. And I specifically, uh, when you were out here walking the golf course with us, uh, you had, had touched base on there's left brainers and there's right brainers. And I, I, I'm wondering if you could go into that a little bit for our listeners and just talk about the, the different types of players that you see and how you can, when you're, when you're working on a golf course, match up your, your maintenance practices or your design or what you're trying to do out there um, to those different types of players. 
Sure, I'll try to condense this real quickly because I, I only have 20 minutes. <laughs> um, I, excuse me, I learned this very early on writing for Golf Digest when when I was watching some uh, some instructors uh, talk about teaching the game. Uh, there are two types of golfer, two types of golfers. There are those that are that are left brain, and in other words, they use the left portion of their brain, which is their their analytical side of their brain is dominant. So they they learn the game by drills and repetition and practice, practice, practice. There are others of us whose right brain dominant. Our right brain has our creative side, our spot spontaneity, spontaneity, and that sort of thing. And uh, uh, right brainers um, tend to tend to not discipline themselves. They t- they tend to be more creative in their shots. They enjoy creating different shots. Uh, they don't mind if they get a bad shot because the idea of, of pulling off, inventing a recovery shot mm-hmm. appeals to them. Um, Tom Kite was the classic left brain golf architect. Ben Crenshaw learned from the same instructor. Harvey Panic was the classic right brain golf golfer. And, uh, um, you know, Harvey would train them both, but he would never let them play together. So, you know, I, I, I realized early on, this is 25 years ago, that, you know, that most of American golfers are left brain uh, dominant golfers. That's why Golf Digest, with their instruction ad nauseum every month, works. You know, yeah. we all want to buy a game. We all want the tip that's going to. And uh, so most golf courses, most golf architects were left brain. Most golf, golf courses were left brain in America. Uh, and they were they were engineered. They were engineered for for you know, uniformity of turf and uniformity of conditions and, and, and ease of maintenance and all that sort of thing. Uh, then some right brain architects came along. Um, Pete Dye being probably the most classic, but Mike Strantz, uh, I, I, I could I could rattle off a few others. And 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 the game has slowly shifted towards more right brain architecture now. We're still a left brain society in terms of golf because uh, I can tell you, I, I bet I go out to Elmwood today and there's guys with their little gizmos on their phones to fill exact yardages and, and they, they, they want, you know, they want all this, they want engineered information. And yet we're providing more and more right brain sort of golf courses. And by right brain, I mean something that's scruffy around their edges, that's a little, a, a, a little bit or a considerable amount of rub of the green. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't doesn't mind the occasional blind shot, doesn't mind the occasional bad bounce. Um, instead of this uniformity, a, a part of that right brain uh, movement is clearing out trees because you know right brainers don't like the structure that left brainers put in their tree planting programs for forty years because they felt like they wanted every hall, every fairway to look like a hallway that focused their attention. And they wanted a backdrop to the green, you know, so that sort of thing. Um, now we're, now we're, now we're cleaning out and getting rid of, of, of some of that. Um, and, and I, I truly believe that that is, um, the difference between certain architects and other architects and certain courses and other courses. The old course at St. Andrews is the classic right brain course. First time you play it, everybody hates it because you can't see anything. Mm-hmm. There are hidden bunkers everywhere. There are greens that are enormous and serve two different holes. Uh, you, you, you don't know where to hit it. You're aiming at a cloud. 
by the time you, you know, the second or third time you play it, you, you start to understand it. Uh, Augusta National is a classic left brain architecture. There isn't anything there that isn't precisely engineered. Uh, and and, and it's, um, it serves its purpose. It's a great, great venue for that, for that event. Um, I've always been a right brainer. If you saw my desk right now, you'd realize I am uh, pretty cluttered and, and unorganized. Um, and the architecture that I've always practiced is more uh, right brain. Now, I, I, I did a, a course collaboration with Mike Hurdson and Dana Fry when they were together as Hurdson Fry. Uh, Aaron Hills, which hosted the 2017 USO. Mm-hmm. I always thought I was going to be the go-between between Mike, who was who is the you know the the classic blueprint wonk who had to have everything in pay on you know on paper, and Dana Fry, who was who was you know the right brainer who wanted to you know, his his match was steeper and deeper and and build and rebuild and rebuild until you I I found out I was even more right brained but if you just go into any course understanding uh, the background of it the the philosophy of the architect and the clientele that's paying for this course I think you under, you understand <clears throat> excuse me a bit more why certain courses are the way they are and why other courses are the way they are now uh, you, you talked about all those little nine-hole courses in Iowa, which I celebrate. The, you know, the older I get, the more I love nine-hole rounds yeah. because uh, my attention span doesn't work. But what I love about them is they are mostly low-maintenance, or I'm sorry, low-budget operations. Yeah. Um, and and so my feeling is if I were to do what David did, uh, does in, in trying to address that, it would be to first and foremost, try to get their maintenance elevated uh, within whatever budget they have to to, to make it uh, as attractive and playable as it possibly can. I, I can tell you from a lot of surveys that I did for Golf Digest over the years, we, we surveyed all our readers and all this stuff. And in terms of architecture, uh, their definition of good architecture was if they had great greens. Yeah. If those greens were... We, were Beautiful and flawless and puttable, and it, it was a great course. Didn't matter what the rest of the course was. Yeah, it had lousy greens. It was a lousy course. So you focus first and foremost on the greens, and um, uh, everything else is just sort of ancillary. And uh, 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 you know, I, I'm I'm a firm believer that in the future we got to get back to more mechanical maintenance, less hand maintenance, because labor costs are such. Uh, greens need to be you know, there's nothing wrong with triplex mowers. You know, some golfers sniff at that, but I still think, uh, you know, if you design a good green that can be triplex mode, um, more power to you because you're you're you've got to you've got you've got limited resources and you've got to address it uh, where it's important. Um, and and the same with bunkers. For whatever reason, and I think Golf Digest was part of the reason. When you look back at these pictures of Augusta National from the 60s and 70s, its bunkers were really shallow. I mean, Jack Nicklaus once putted out of a bunker on the 16th hole. We go look at those bunkers today. They're five feet deep. Everybody's gotten building deeper and steeper bunkers. And, and part of that was 
CD and then pictures and golf digest. Um, but there's no reason why the average golf course needs to have these deep bunkers. Uh, there's nothing wrong with a shallow bunker, um, something that can be mechanically raked instead of hand raked. Um, those are the, 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 the here, here I'm a right brainer and I'm talking left brain kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to use both sides of my brain. Yeah, I think there's a there's a healthy dose there. A mix would be would be, would be uh, you know good, um, but to touch on the maintenance side of that, you know, um, there was a, a one nine hole golf course I was helping out with a little bit, and they were operating the uh, you know their nine holes on about twenty thousand dollars. Well, first I went in there and I said, hey, what's your guys' budget? And they're like, what do you what do you mean? <laughs> you know, they didn't. Even, they didn't have that number and they kind of went back and looked at some stuff and they're like, yeah, we're trying to operate on about 20,000 and which was fine. They were making the cut, but they were wondering why, you know, they fairways were all crabgrass and you know, why the greens weren't growing in certain areas because they, you know, they didn't have an irrigation system that was adequate and whatever else. And we, we turned some things around, did some good projects there. And, you know, they were like, Hey, would you be interested in sticking around and, I said, you know, I think if you guys were to commit to raising your grounds budget, maintenance budget to $40,000, you guys could have a pretty, pretty legit little golf course here. And uh, just trying to, to monetarily, you know, wake them up just a little bit that you guys could have a pretty pristine in, in their regards, a very attractive looking and you know a lot of that stuff is detail work, but you got to have some bodies, you got to have some people, um, uh, you got to have the equipment. You know that's that's the big thing, as far as triplex. You know you got to have a healthy triplex. <laughs> you know you got to have a healthy rough mower. Um, but then there's areas you can get around. Um, Jay, did you have another question? No, I just love the discussion. Actually. Um... You know, Ron, you were out here and 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 kind of knowing the brief story of what took place at our golf course. You know, we were we were a beautiful tree line facility um, that you know was basically demolished by the the derecho that came through. And you know, being at the time, I think we were we were maxed out at like fifty seven hundred yards, uh, tree line, tight little short course. And all of a sudden, we had to look at some some different ways to. Um, I guess, protect the integrity of some of the golf shots. We we've added some length. We've also added some forward tees and things like that. Um, but just, just briefly touch base on, you know, being a shorter course, just shy of 6,100 yards, you know, we're trying to do some bunkering, do some waste areas that create a little more strategy and a little more thought into how our golf course is played as a result of the storm that came through. If we don't do anything, I feel like, I feel like players can just come out here and, and swing away with no thought and consequence. And we're trying to, I guess, create something that, you know, has the same shot value that it did in 1970 in, in 2021. Um, so just touch base on the shorter course and strategy and, and how that plays into architecture, I guess, in the modern modern or, game. Or to top on that, sh here, same here, shot value is like 1930. Yeah. You know, so. Here's what, here, here, here's what delights me about what you're doing at Elwood. A, a, a couple of things real quick. Um, most average country clubs are match play courses. 
games. Everybody plays some sort of NASA or some sort of game where where they aren't recording a score so much as they're recording what holes they've won and lost. So it doesn't really matter what length is. I mean, length is all a PGA Tour dictates too much anyway. But length is all about competitive golf on the stroke play level, which is you know the professional level. And you're never going to have a professional event there. Um, you're talking to a guy that was involved in, in designing a course that was 8,400 yards long at Aaron Hills. And when they held the U.S. Open there, they didn't come close to playing it at that length. They played it at 7,700 yards. So even we wasted money building all those back. <laughs> um, what, what, I, what, what I find delightful is that for match play purposes, uh, and, and I have a different philosophy that, than a lot of people on match play, but I think match play it is one of those where you every whole lot have little little bit where you can get in trouble uh, and a little bit where you can if you take a risk and and, and pull it off uh, you're gonna probably win the hole and go up in the in the match uh, and that's what I see you guys doing uh, uh, in an excellent way at uh, at Elwood by kind of removing some of the trees and replacing it with those with, uh, Dave Oakster, what do you call those? Uh, 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 scrub, scrub areas. Yep, uh, scrub areas. Uh, scrub areas, yeah. They're, they're, they're kind of sandy areas. They're, they're, um, they certainly don't have any relationship to the original design of the course or the expansion of the course. There's something original. There's something original to Iowa. And there's something original to, to a, a lot of, of, uh, of courses. Um, you, you're also rebunkering some of those. You know, it's. Uh, I love the little um, churchy bunkers that you put on hole two. I guess it is. Yeah. Yep. Um, and and some of the things you're doing, you know, that the, you're not you're not blowing up and redoing the what is it, the twelfth green, that the par three that's so notorious. You know, yeah. you're, you're preserving <laughs> that. Uh, uh, that's again that's another great match play hole. It's a yep. two or a six. <laughs> and uh, and to me, that's that's where you know if 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 I were going to get in the business, I'd be selling it hard and fast. That you don't need to add length to get in this race for who's got the longest mm-hmm. golf course. Uh, what you need to do is address uh, how you make each hole individual for match play purposes, where. Where there's a little bit of trouble and there's a little bit of reward and there's a little bit of of risk taking, um, and and I think you know most state amateurs are are match play events, so you're going to have a course that's a you know state amateur worthy event. Um, I got uh, I got a question before I forget too, and it kind of touches on that little match play aspect. And we got about four minutes before we got to take another break, so maybe I'll get this question out to both Ron and David here, and then you guys can think about it and, and maybe answer it on the on the backside of this break here. But uh, you know, Jay and I were having a discussion, and this is something that uh, I mean, I have long um, been an advocate advocate for, and had some discussions for for several years, but. Um, you know, we were talking about the rigidness and kind of the structure of golf and I just like things kind of be free flowing and, and kind of that match play aspect. And, you know, I, I, I personally, I don't think on a daily member golf course, 
we don't need T markers. Uh, you know, if, if like at an Elmwood for a certain public golf is is something different. Um, but country club aspect of uh, of that, you know, we know basically where the T markers are, and you're going to go out and you're playing with the same group of guys or same group of gals, and you're going to tee it up from wherever you want, and, and just kind of you know that free flowing aspect of that. Um, but the the rigidness, I guess, of the structure of the term par, a par four, a par five, a par three, uh, when it comes to high handicappers and, and scratch golfers, and, and I know stroke play events, they, it was a, a number to put on television or something. But, you know, when you sit back and, and, and you think about playing with the same group of guys, does, does par really matter? But we're all so enamored with that number. Oh, you just made this hole more more difficult um, because now it takes me six shots or seven shots as opposed to five or six. Um, and just saying, you know, well, I for what I normally play out here, I had a I had a little rougher day, but uh, you know, I, I played the course a little bit, I navigated. I played a little bit smarter today, and I navigated a little bit better. It's kind of that same mentality as as match play um, in my mind because you're not so much worried about. Um, what score you're shooting, but you're, you just got to beat your opponent. Where on a daily basis, I'm trying to beat myself in that regard. But the other question that I have, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and but when it comes down to fairness, and, and there should be some, there's this is just a train of thought I have. But why has golf become really the only sport where everything has to be fair? And in this regards, I mean. You know, we don't lower field goal post in, in football for certain kickers. Uh, we don't lower the hoops between men and women's. We don't shorten the length of a soccer field. We don't, um, you know, this was brought up to me a couple of years by uh, by somebody. And I was like, you know, I, I don't think it compares. But now I've gone back and I'm like, but why has golf? And I think part of it is to get some interest, get more people into the game. I, I understand. But that concept of somehow the probably the one sport where skill and luck and everything is um you know very much intermingled with each other go ahead jake this is definitely a a great topic i love it um just from the standpoint of you know golf is definitely a game that you're you're really competing with yourself against a, against a, a property um, and, and once you can, in my opinion, once you can grasp that concept, like I'm not, yeah, yes, I have a handicap and yes, that allows me to compete, mm-hmm. uh, equitable to, to all players. But in reality, I'm out there trying to better the golf course, think my way around to, to try to produce what at the end of the day, what golf is, is a number at the end of the day. When I, if, if it takes me 76 shots, that's what it took me to. To, to, to beat the golf course yep. it has nothing to do with what par is. It's just, that's, that's what it took for me to, to play today. And I think that's the beauty of the game is the fact that, you know, I'm out there policing myself, competing with myself against the golf course. And that, I think that's why people gravitate towards becoming basically addicted to this game because they, they want that, that dopamine hit of beating the golf course and doing better than what they've ever done before. And that's what keeps them coming back over and over and over again. We're going to transition 
to that. I love the the concept. It's definitely going to take more than three minutes to, to <laughs> go through that. But we're going to come back with part three of this podcast with David Hookstra and Ron Witten. We really appreciate you guys being here uh, with us, and we'll be back with part three. Thanks for listening.